Hello, lovely people of Oz. You're listening to Starbursts, the Bookworm podcast, brought to you by FabRadioInternational.com. I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and I'm here with... With Russ Smith today. So, uh, coming up on the show, we're going to excitedly froth about nine months. Yay! Which Yay! myself, Mr. Smith, and producer Al are currently at... This is a pre-record. Dun dun dun. So, so we're currently running around a convention uh, hotel somewhere in London right now, which is why we're not going to bring you any news, but we are going to talk excitedly about stuff that's happening right now. Is that sort of news? I've also got to repair the time machine. Yes, we have to repair a time machine. Uh, what book are you reviewing on this show? Oh, I'll ask you first, because... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll like be fine, the book. I'll be reviewing Eric Brown and... Una McCormack's The Babby Yak. Aha. Well, in which case, I shall be uh, reviewing Ravine, which is a graphic novel. And all of that is to come. Across the world, 24 hours a day, So we're not here. We are in fact Nine World, which is can be described as an un- unconventional traditional convention. How do you something. describe an unconventional traditional convention, Ed? Unconventionally, by which I mean I'm using glove puppets and I'm on the radio. It's not a visual medium. It's not a visual medium. Uh, essentially, Nine World is... How do you describe it? Nine Worlds is all about lots and lots of different conventions going off all at the same time. So whereas you would, uh, at a traditional convention, let's say something like Worldcon or Eastercon, uh, that sort of a thing, you'd expect there to be a series of tracks, and one would be about books, one might be about science fiction, there might be a film festival, that sort of thing. Nine Worlds does the same sort of thing, but it has knitting. Um, it has And fanfic. And fanfic. Uh, and Josh Whedon. And Josh Whedon. Not the actual Josh Whedon. Not the actual Josh Whedon, just, you know, just fanfic. Uh, it's not the sort of thing you'd expect to see your usual kind of guests doing signings. I mean, they are book signings and that sort mm. of thing. But it's, you know, they, they aren't massive queues of people hoping to have just a quick quick selfie with someone who was on telly once. I'll, I'll do some signings if people bring any along, but I won't have any. <laughs> <laughs> That's also one of the things I like about these conventions, is you can just bound up to an author and go, can you sign this, please? And they're like, OK, thank you. Hi, please go away. Uh, and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's it, it's Kevin Gillen uh, described it as a kind of a future works, you know, a kind of a kind of a place where new ideas are formed and people communicate with each other. It's kind of crazy. I think he described it directly as a farsight community, which was a, a reference to Transmetropolitan by Warren Ellis. Oh yeah. So yeah, it's, and it is. It's got that kind of. This will be your first nine worlds, won't it? It will be my first nine worlds. Hark at me pretending I'm an all veteran. There's only been three nine worlds events. Um, we were booked for the um, the the first one. We didn't go because I was recovering from from previous celebrations. And the the second one we went to uh, myself and producer Al went to, and we had an awful lot of fun. And now it's myself, yourself, and producer Al. Yeah. My annual flight to Atlantis is delayed by a week, so I'll be able to make this one. Uh, and Ninfa, who's also n- not at Atlantis, but is in, <laughs> is in Spain. So is it Spain or Greece or somewhere? Uh, like Gran Canaria. So somewhere yeah, near Spain. Atlantis. Somewhere, near somewhere Atlantis. European. Yes. Ish. Um, and so, yes, not the entire team, but they are an awful lot of us. So... Uh, as as this show is going out, you'll 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 be like, oh well, why are you talking about nine worlds? I'm not going to be there. Well, next week we'll be doing a show from nine worlds. We'll also be nice and you know drop a couple of things on social media here and there, so we can tell you in advance that you're prepared for this. And when you're listening to this, you can go, ah, <laughs> that's what he was talking about. <laughs> I mean, I, I find it, I find this sort of thing fascinating. And by the way, if you are listening from outside the UK and you're sitting there going well, why are they talking about a convention that I'm not going to go to? Well the reason it matters and the reason you should care at least find it interesting 
is that the nature of conventions are changing and the nature of gatherings are changing. And it's weird because we have this online thing in the world where geeks can get together and talk to each other, you know, online in this sort of communication. But we kind of, it kind of doesn't work the same way. There's not that same level of intimacy. There's not that same level of communication online. You can join a forum and you can get into a blazing row with someone. Mm. And, you know, that, that gets you a level of productivity. But it's not the same. Just sitting I think down. what we're saying is there's a certain aspect of... In, uh, uh, there's a very impersonal aspect to being on the internet, which is fine because, you know, you'll be... Um, chances are you're sat in a, ro- uh, sat in a room while, while on the internet, either on your own or um, with friends being unsociable. But this is what we're talking about. But what's happened <laughs> is there's been a big kind of rise in com- physical meetups and physical conventions. And I think that's because... Because online you can go, oh right, there are people interested in turning up to Manchester and having an enormous party and talking talking about comic books. People turn up and you know have a, have a big party. And these you know, there's more and more conventions all the time. And part of that is people looking to make money because they've worked out that if they get you know several people from Doctor Who and several people from Blake Seven and several people from other telly shows and they put them in a room, people will turn up for signings. Sylvester McCoy. Sylvester Aldred. Virginia Hay. All of whom are absolutely lovely people, and we uh, see fairly regularly because we did quite a few conventions. Uh, but you know, not in a cup of tea sort of way, but in a hello sort of. Way, and they're like hellos, nerds. I'm sure we've seen them before. <laughs> but you get those sort of things. But you also just get people meeting up for the sake of meeting up. And the reason Nine Worlds is interesting is because it's subverted the traditional traditional convention. Oh. I, it, it's the you know, traditional convention. People turn up and they talk about stuff. Nine worlds because it's like here are a whole bunch of crazy things that you can do, and here are a whole whole bunch of you know rules and behaviours that we expect you to, to to try and try and practice so the world becomes a nicer place. And it just you know it's trying to create a safe space for the people who feel uncomfortable in more social situations, so they can go out and they can explore and they can go and they can talk to loads of other people, and the result is something rather wonderful. You know, people who don't normally get a chance to talk get a chance to talk, and then suddenly, wow! And in the same way that San Diego Comic Con has had a knock-on effect on all the comic conventions in the world, Nine Worlds is this tiny little nub of something new, which is slowly but surely infecting all these other conventions. Yes, conventions are getting ideas because I've been. Uh, whilst I haven't been to Nine Worlds, I've been to other conventions of, of which have clearly said, "Oh, we've had this. We got this idea from Nine Worlds." I, I like the little things they do, like the the convention, the cosplay tokens. I think cosplay tokens are fantastic, and mm. they stole that idea from somewhere else. I don't know who came up with it originally. They say stole, they they, they adapted it, you know, shared. They shared the idea from somewhere else. Um, and the, the whole thing is, you know, you see someone who's in a nice cosplay kit, and you want to go with a nice costume, but you don't want to go with a nice costume because you don't want to interrupt what they're doing, and you kind of you don't want to make them feel uncomfortable, and you know, they're, they're socially awkward. Um, and you're a nerd convention, of course you're socially awkward because you're a nerd. Uh, and I get this, you know, I, I do all sorts of things publicly and I'm a very egreg- egregious ta- chat. Egreg- egregious? Egregious? Egregious. Egregious. Yeah. Anyway, talkative. Uh, <laughs> is a sort of person. And I, I like seeing hello to all, uh, all, all sorts of people, but still I'm a bit shy. And I like the cosplay token thing where you just go up to someone and give them a, like, a little voucher. And they, they, they go, thank you very much. It's, a token, it's literally a token of appreciation. I, I think I'm a really harsh judge, though, because I still have some from last year. But you can save these and give them to someone else. Only if they're the same colour. That's a good point, actually. Mm. Yeah. But anyway, anyway, if you've got, like, is it 40? If you, get like if, if, you, if you get a certain number, then you get a thing, a snacky prize of some sort. Uh, and I think if you get the most over the weekend, you maybe get some sort of uber prize. But I might just be making this up entirely. It's totally a worthless prize. It's like Kinder Egg, which is you know, for a given definition of worthless. But it's for fun. Yeah, That's but if you're American, Kinder Eggs are really exciting because they don't have them, I think. No, they don't. There's some sort of legal... <laughs> Choking hazard? Health and safety? What? <laughs> Tosh and nonsense. Um, so shall we, shall we stop doing these and start talking about books? So I, I'm going to start off with The Baba Yaga by Eric Brown and Una McCormack. Now we've talked about the Weird Space series before. 
so weird space how to describe it you've got you've got mankind has a space empire called the expansion um and they've got this kind of this huge growing world um slowly but surely you've got your core worlds where everyone follows the law everything is safe everything's fine and they've got areas such as satan's reach which is where the outer fringes where all the crazy aliens are and all of the crazy stuff goes on. So in the, the core world, it's all you know human for the humans, and if you follow the rules and you know you, you allow yourself to be controlled by by the expansion, by by the the you know the the, the services that run that, then you're fine. Um, if you want to be a little bit different, or if you're inconveniently psychic or inconveniently you know different in some other way, then no. The expansion government is not interested in you, and you'll find yourself pushed to the outer fringes. Are we straight on with the social commentary here? Then we will be a straight, straight. The whole thing is straight on with the, the, the social commentary. Um, however, um, there is a there is a, another there's a kind of another alien um, side. There's a, a bunch of aliens. We had a, we had a big war with another alien empire, so we kind of we, we don't terribly get on with the Vetch is what they're called. And the Vetch are kind of like a dog faced tentacle alien creature, weirdy what's it. Um and the thing is we've we've got more in common than we have not in common, despite the fact that we were both ugly to each other. But obviously that's why we've we've had a massive war. Um not for oil. Not for not for oil. And then there's this third force which has appeared from the other dimension called the Weird. And the Weird are just the, the, these weird, well, weird, weird, yeah. weird kind of assimilation, <laughs> organic. Imagine the Borg, but organic essentially. They're like an organic kind of hive mind that's trying to take control. The first time we encountered them, they were just enslaving human beings in a kind of, you know, they were kind of, we're a loving hippie cult, but we're not really because we're being horribly eaten by monsters. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so. The expansion is using this as an excuse. It's like, there is a threat. There is a threat of the weird. You have to be afraid. Be afraid. Be afraid because the weird might come and get you. They might turn up at your planet and destroy it. Huh. So that's why you have to abandon all your other civil liberties. Starship Troopers Cactus Edition? Sta- <laughs> yes. Uh, meets Firefly. Oh. By, by way of Firefly. So the, the particular plot of this, um, it, it's kind of several things all at once. But the so we've got like we've got like a couple of various bits and pieces going on. Firstly, you've got the kind of the, the expansion intelligence agency, and they're shocked to discover um, that there's a that the, the, there is a weird attack on really close to the coal world, and they're like, oh my goodness! And suddenly they they were kind of like putting along with the weird, and they were like, maybe we should try and send out some more psychics. Maybe we should try and have a conversation with them. There's rumours of, you know, groups in Satan's Roots that seem to have found, maybe it's dissident weird, maybe it's another faction of the weird, but, you know, weird who are interested in peace. Hmm. And they're like, well, maybe we should investigate that. And the intelligence agency at this point is kind of, you know, the, the guy who's running it is incredibly intelligent and he's, you know, he's open to suggestions and he runs it as a kind of collegiate style organisation and he's got his own following. And his own group, and there's another bunch of hawks within that organisation who are like, "No, military intelligence should be military, damn it!" And uh, you know, we should we should just wipe out the weird, no compromise, no conversation. Then this world gets destroyed by the weird, and then suddenly all the people who are like slightly more liberal or verboten, they're, they're basically kicked out. Um, so there's that. At that point, it goes against their voice of. <laughs> and th- there's also a plot with a guy. Is it's, the book starts with this guy going, quick, everyone, pack, why? We have to leave the world. Why do we have to leave the world? Just pack. And they peg it to, to Satan's Ridge, uh, which is obviously the outer side. And moments later, the world gets destroyed by the weird. It's a little bit hitchhikers. It's a little bit hitchhikers. It's more kind of like, quick, let's leave the city before you know it gets blown up sort of thing. It's that proper kind of like, oh, flee. Right, so that's the setting. What's the book like? Well... It's better than the last two. The, the, there's three books in the series so far, and we quite liked uh, the, the first one. It was all right. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, the second one, not so much. There's basically there's a we quite like the Devil's Never um, and Satan's Reach was a bit hmm, 
to, to, to be honest, we, we, we it started well and it kind of set the world up really well and then it kind of descended into sci-fi fantasy, military sci-fi fantasy cliches. Uh, I was just like, oh, I really enjoyed this and now we've just got, you know, the second book had a little bit too many super hot Black Widow style, you know, super sexy ninjas for my liking. Ah, it was the thing to do at the time, presumably. And it just felt a little bit forced and everyone seemed to be a mouthpiece for certain sorts of politics and this sort of thing. This one uh, is Eric Brown and Andrew McCormack, so it's uh, it's an extra voice in McCormack's voice has been added to the, to the, the, the work. And it's much better. It's much, much better. Um... Partially we've got believable female characters, partially we've got believable male characters, partially we've got believable alien characters. The good's got believable characters all the way through. Um it's not you know, it's not gonna change the world when it comes to science fiction. It is a fun kind of, you know, kind of flip through, it'll take you maybe a day to Good entertaining reading if you like that sort of thing. It's a handful of tube journeys worth of just, you know, flipping through and having fun. But it is it is compelling. It is page turning, right? Um, partially because uh, Delia Walker, who's the one of the agents, a senior analyst character, is just so much fun. Because rather than just being this properly skilled spy who has properly skilled spy powers, she's just a bit of a git. <laughs> you know, she's she's very cold. She's very analytical because she's a senior analyst, um, <laughs> and. No, you know, she's like, people are like, what are you, are you just bulldozing through everything that's going on? Why are you being so awful? It's like, and she has her own motivations and reasons and understanding. But it's it's nice to see a book where the author's not trying to make you like the characters. Just make, just wants you to enjoy the story, which is quite fun. And there's mm. less, there, there's less, this sort of sci-fi tends to suffer from a bit of data smashing it towards the end. There's less of that. There's a touch of it. But it's important to the plot. Right, so most of the characters have a, a high level of agency through the uh, through the story. You know? Even the less than competent characters have, have a level of agency. Hmm. Um, the, there's one, there's, there is a particular sequence of scenes where one particular character is just not that competent and she's been thrown into a situation which she can't really... You know, she's, a, she's a suburban housewife who's then suddenly been thrown into Moss Eisley and is expecting to survive. <laughs> Oddly enough, she doesn't fare that well, um, and is very lucky, and then later on is like, right, I now, now, know, I now understand what I need to do and where I need to be, and kind of, not so much grows up, just gets on. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, um, is it fun? Yes. Is it full of sci-fi cliches? Yes, but who cares? Um, did I enjoy it? Heck Yes. Will I read the next one? Absolutely. Um, it is called the Babiago. The reason it's called the Babiago—I <laughs> almost forgot. The reason it's called the Babiago is because they're in a ship called the Babiago, and the pilot of the ship is a, a crazy, crazy drunk guy. Essentially, he's got a serious problem. He's got a serious drug addiction problem because he's riddled with horrible, horrible things. And he's like, should leave. Is this one of those pilots who's seen things? Yes, he's seen things. Damn it, <laughs> <laughs> things that, that you shouldn't have seen and. And damn it, let's let's just get here and mm. fly away. There's a my favourite character in here is a is a vetch child, so it's like an alien child. Yeah. He's just really cool and really practical, and he hates the pilot. And the pilot hates him, and they actually their, their dialogue between each other is some of the funniest stuff in the entire novel. Um, but yes, it's called Baby Aaron. Uh, it's by Eric Brown and Una McCormack. It is available on Abaddon Books, um, and it's out now. Horror writer Paul Keane recently. This is what he had to say for himself. This is Fab Radio International. 
Paul Keane, welcome to the bookworm. Well, thanks for having me. What can you tell us about your latest Hooded Man book? Uh, well, it's the first um, Hooded Man story in about five years. Um, the original trilogy came out between 2008, I think, and 2010. Um, and it did quite well. And then they, uh, Abaddon Books repackaged it as Hooded, Hooded Man, which did, which did really well. That sold out quite quickly. Um, of its original print run. Um, and then David Thomas Moore, who's now the editor of Abaddon, it used to be Jonathan Oliver, said to me uh, a couple, oh, about a year and a half ago, probably something like that, um, would you like to do another story in the in the series? And I didn't have to think about it <laughs> at all, really, because I wanted to, I've been thinking about how, the, you know, they, they might have carried on with their lives, the characters that I wrote about, which basically it's a post-apocalyptic, Robin Hood um, and my main character is called Robert Stokes he's an ex-policeman um, and they're a very kind of similar character as well Ex exactly the same characters that were in Robin Hood's time um, back in the day uh, just my variations on them so it's basically catching up with him about eight or nine years later something like that after the events in, in Arrowland uh, Why are we fascinated with Robin Hood? I don't know. I mean, my my favourites have always. I mean, I, I read, you know, the stories when I was little. Always, you know, the stories were read to me. Um, I don't live that far away from Sherwood Forest. Uh, um, I'm about kind of twenty minutes, half an hour away from from Sherwood Forest. So, I was always being taken there by my parents for bank holidays, um, and I was fascinated by by the museum and the visitor centre and you know the major oak and going round. Um, but I don't know what it is. I think it, I always say it's he's kind of like the first superhero, I think, anyway, or one of the first superheroes in that he was doing all these amazing things. You know, he's, I always compare him a little bit to Batman when I'm <laughs> doing readings or anything like that because I've got sequences that are a little bit like Batman in my in my book. So I always think of him as kind of superhero as such. Um, so maybe it's that it's just the legend it's like good versus evil it's um, you know robbing the rich to, to give to the poor and the whole the whole legend really my favourite um, adaptation of it was Richard Carpenter's from the 80s Robin Hood. I don't know if you remember that one from uh, I think it was the mid 80s did you ever watch that one that's the one, yeah. Michael prayed first, and then it was Jason Connolly, wasn't it? Connery, sorry, after that. So it, that had kind of mythology and magic and stuff in it. So I, I could kind of emulate that a little bit, because that's my favourite version. What's responsible for their longevity? I don't know. I mean, um, I think it's because we're, we're always sort of... Society on the verge of, of something bad happening. I think. I mean, you only have to look at the news recently. I mean, um, and I think it's kind of that post-apocalyptic setting is kind of a, of a way of maybe dealing with that um, in fiction. I mean, I always say that because I, I write horror as well as science fiction, so I always say that I write about things that scare me, so they're a little less scary. Um, so I think maybe writing about that is a bit of a catharsis, and people reading about it. Maybe you know post-apocalyptic setting, and it's got heroes. It's got good versus evil. So maybe it's a kind of way of I don't know dealing with that a little bit. But um, I, I don't know. I just kind of put the Robin Hood thing together with that because I figured it'd go back to. I mean, it's the AB virus in After Black Chronicles from Abaddon, and that kills ninety percent of the world's population. So I just figured it'd go back to sort of Robin Hood. You know, times with feudal systems and you know the, the strong brain on the weak and things like that. So I think they're just good. They're good adventures, really. <laughs> the the book's set in one of Abaddon's set worlds. Are you going to explore that world more? Um, I've I've never really. When I did a little crossover with um, Scott Andrews, who did the Schools Out books, he did three of those. Um, and they were they were set in Britain as well, and I think that's what we were kind of concentrating on. We were building up 
after like Britain, if you like. Um, and we did some kind of crossover work with those with the um, in the novels and also in some short stories as well. So um, we were we were quite busy doing that. But I'd, I'd like I'd I'd, I'd uh, I'd do anything really in the After Blight series because I think it's just a, a really good setting for adventure. You know. What's next? What's coming up? Um, well, I've got a sequel to my uh, Little Red Ride Little Red Riding Hood, um, which was Red um, called Red in in two thousand seven. I think that came out two thousand eight. And there's a sequel novel that I've just done to that for SST Publications. Um, I've got a collection of monster stories out through Alchemy, which launches a week on Saturday at Edgelit in Derby. Um, it's got a lot of my kind of monster stories from over the last 20 years, and it's got a cover by Clive Barker and an introduction by Nicholas Vince, who played Chatter of Cenobite and Kinski in um, Nightbreed. Uh, that's sort of immediately on on the horizon. Um, I've got another Dalton Tale coming out, which is like the comedy horror stuff, because I, I write that as light relief, really. Um, and that's launching. It was, I think, it was meant to originally launch at Edge, but it's going to be a couple of weeks after that now, and that's through Pendragon Press. So that's that's sort of the immediate future, really. What franchises do you still want to write for? Ooh, there's a few of those. I'm kind of I'm kind of picking them off as I go. I mean, I've already written a Sherlock Holmes, so that was one of the ones that I got to tick off. I've written a couple of Sherlock Holmes short stories now. The last one was a mammoth book of Sherlock Holmes Abroad, um, edited by Simon Clark. Uh, I'd love to write a James Bond. <laughs> I think a lot of people would. Um, Batman, maybe I've already mentioned Batman. Um, Doctor Who, perhaps. Um, I really like Doctor Who. Uh, it's difficult. There's there's so many things that I would love to do that I probably won't get the chance to. But uh, um, lots of things that I'm that I'm a fan of. I mean, um, getting to write about Hellraiser for the books because I'm a, a massive fan of you know still I'm a massive fan of Clive Barker's work. Of course, Scarlet Gospel just come out. Um, so getting to write about Hellraiser is a is a dream come true for me, and getting to you know work on on a few things with Clive, that that to me is a dream come true. That's um, that's actually happened. So, <laughs> if you only had one book for company, what would it be? One book. Oh. Um, again, I'd be kind of torn between uh, Clive, Books of Blood, and the the Hellbound Heart because I'm such a Hellraiser fan. Uh, probably Books of Blood because it's got more stories in. <laughs> um, that's the book that, that that I'd save. I think if it was in a kind of afterlife chronicle situation. Which of your works would you like to see adapted into other media? Oh well, I'm actually well, I've adapted a few things into into short films. Um, two or three have been made. Uh, I'm, I've actually just adapted Luna, which is a novel of mine from a few years ago, into both the film script, which is going to get get made um, in the near future, and also a graphic novel. So I've I've adapted <laughs> adapted those. I don't know. I don't know what um, I'm trying to think now because I've done so much stuff. Um, I don't know. I'd I'd love to do the Robin Hood books and turn those into into a feature script at some point. There has been some interest over the years, but um, I'd love to turn those into films or into film scripts. Um, yeah, I'd probably I'd probably say those. Simpsons or Futurama? Oh, right. Simpsons or Futurama. Um, Futurama, I think, because of just the genre <laughs> context of the show. Um, I'll do, I do love The Simpsons, but I think Futurama would have to be, be the one. 
The sheriff or Robin? Ooh. As as what? As a friend or as an enemy or <laughs> Oh um I think the Sheriff of Nottingham is a more interesting character. He's certainly more interesting to write. Uh, I loved writing uh, the Falaise, who's my um, version of the Sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, just everybody loves a, a villain, don't they? And mine's, I don't, I don't know if I call him pantomime, but he's, very, he's definitely old school. Um, so I think, I think the Sheriff's more interesting. But in terms of kind of, if I, if I want somebody in a fight around, I think, I think little John. <laughs> Truth or beauty? Truth, I think. Definitely. Paul Keane, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This is Fab Radio International. Today I'll be reviewing a Ravine, which is a, a graphic novel I found whilst uh, uh, whilst digging on my shelves. Uh, it's a uh, it was a wonderful Christmas present I got sometime, and it's um, let's see, I'll say uh, Stefan Setich and uh, Ron Martz are uh, responsible for this. It's um, Goes it goes very quickly into telling you what it is. When you look at the back, it just says epic fantasy. So, you know, <laughs> it's a fantasy that's epic, then. Oh, absolutely. It, um, I, and actually, yeah, it um, does pretty much what it does uh, pretty much what it says on the tin. They never just go shopping, do they? The, 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 these people, they're like you know, fantasy adventurers. Let, let's let's just go around to the corner, buy some rings. Maybe not. Eh? Anyway, sorry. I imagine there's quite. Uh, 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 yeah, I, I imagine there is some sort of uh, some sort of plot where you know you could have just um, phoned the Eagle Taxi Service and uh, got the, got this entire thing done quite quickly. But um, yeah, uh, you'll have your. Uh, I'm sure you'll have your uh, list of uh, list of expected epic fantasy tropes down there, and you'll be able to tick them up. You'll be, you'll be able to tick a few of them off as you go along. Some, however, are a little different here. First, it's um, whilst fairly uh, whilst fairly chunky for a uh, graphic novel edition, it still manages to condense a, a great deal of the first part of the story into. Um, relatively few pages to be honest as there's a there's an awful lot to introduce uh the first part of it is a prologue whereby you get the uh, whereby you get the uh, you the, the usual backstory uh a huge hero of the uh, a, a huge hero of the world has uh, somehow managed to get themselves uh, horribly poisoned which Basically, uh, which basically corrupts them, sort of physically and um, more, more to the point, spiritually. And the, one of their well, one of their old uh, buddies has to has to stop them from doing the uh, from from doing the great evil thing that is the that is of course going to destroy the world or or lead it into darkness. So that's that's of course where we where we come in. Uh, they are defeated. Uh, they are defeated, at least from a temporary standpoint, or or, or held up. Uh, starts with well, there there is a uh, there's a fairly noble sacrifice from uh, what what looks like a love interest to begin with. Uh, nothing's ever that simple in this, which is uh, which is quite good. You read along and every uh, and. Just it feels like you're going to get the same. Uh, it feels like you're going to get a bunch of the same old stories, but um, there, there's always there's always a little thing where you don't quite get that. So after this, uh, after this occurs, you then get a uh, the book itself is quite extensively introducing all of the main characters for the series in it now i've only read this uh, i've only read this first one so what i found what it read like to me was a 
you're you're just getting uh, you're just getting in uh, getting in and finding out a bit about a character's background and then it flips to another one does that for a little while then it flips to another one then it flips to another one you know like with uh, you know like with the um a Game of Thrones series and the, the likes where you've got the way where you end up following stories from a point of view and eventually uh, from from one character's uh, point of view mainly and eventually they will intersect or uh, collide on uh, on one another. This does that quite a lot. Hmm. Um, I, in fact, there's quite a, uh, in fact there's a bunch that haven't intersected yet. Things I would definitely say about this: the artwork is absolutely stunning. You've, if you if if you can't even be bothered reading, just just um, just flick through the just flick through the book sometime and have and just just have a look at some of the art visuals because they will almost almost photo quality at times. Um, and if you if you like looking at um, if you like looking at dragons and um, magnificent magnificently shiny armor and actually quite um, and um, most of the armor quite uh, quite sensibly designed for the character uh, uh, for, i have to say <laughs> so, so 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 less um revealing armor than the actual armor that will stop you from dying yeah yeah don't get me wrong there's a couple of characters who are in uh, there, there, there's at least there, there is at least one character here who um I would definitely put into the bracket of revealing, but that's that's along the line of the, but uh, that, that's again along the line of um, some sort of sorceress, as far as I can tell. We have uh, I haven't um, been introduced to her for very long, but um, she sat around a bunch of Hydra-style heads, which I'm you know in the process of showing Ed. <laughs> I quite like the idea as you know of demon snakes as as dress wear. Um, if I, I couldn't get away with it myself, obviously. Well, it's, I think it'll catch on. Well, I, I think it's definitely a fashion statement of some kind. Oh, aware. I think it says to everyone, "I'm an evil sorceress." I think that's what that says. Um. Well, I'm not actually sure necessarily she's evil at this point, but <laughs> <laughs> difficult to say. However, um, but yeah, the characters who should be in uh, who should be in armor are in are in practical. Although very very pretty armor, so there's that. Uh, yeah. So is it part of an ongoing series? It certainly is, because I was uh, I was running through it, and we got to a uh, and we got to a nice point. Uh, we got to a quite nice. I wouldn't even call it a cliffhanger. It was a it it was a not terribly natural, uh, not terribly natural stop point, but. Um, you know, tell me, dead man, what name do you want carved on your headstone? Um, you know, it ends with a pleased to meet you. <laughs> so you know, it's, it's not not a, not exactly a spoiler because, as I say, the story doesn't end there. That's just two characters. Also, not a, not, not a place to wait to start a first date. I find no, but looking at the visual, it's clearly a way that a first date is going to start. Oh dear! Okay. <laughs> as you know, a. a, a, a as you know, a, a fairly rogue, a fairly roguish but massively uh, powerful character with a um, with, with a spirit sword, which um, places voices in his head and, and um, you know gives him plenty of useful suggestions as to what he should shouldn't be doing, which he mostly ignores anyway. Uh, meets the uh, uh, meets an ambitious soldier who. Um, Actually, it turns out uh, turns out comes from a um, much more noble lineage and is trying to run away from that. And of course, weapon of destiny turns up. Doesn't quite happen the way you think it's going to, but um, it's it's actually really quite nice, and I won't spoil that for you. So, so who's it by? Who drew it? And what's it available on? Uh, Stephen Setich and Ron Martz. Uh, the Ste- uh, Stephen Setich. I'm I'm, prob- I'm really sorry if I'm pronouncing this um, horribly wrong, but that's the illustrator, um, and he also wrote it along with Ron Martz. And it's by. Uh, you can get it through Image Comics. And it's called. It's called Ravine.
across the world, 24 hours a day. I, I can't imagine talking sort without thinking of I can't remember where the short story came from there's a charming Pratchett-esque short story about a bunch of magical items that I just left in a box and start talking to each other and they just you know just just basically have a bit of a whinge and a whine is that well, the magical items version of your toys come to life when you ain't there yes but well they're all they're all actually like magical talking swords this uh, here should be Toy Story 4 <laughs> <laughs> Lord of the Rings Toy Story 4 yeah well like Sting is, is, is having a chat with you know um, Legolas as a bull and this sort of thing and they all but it, it's, it's a trope isn't it in, in fantasy that you have like the talking sword and you kind of you get it in books and you get it in comic books but you don't and you get it in role playing games yeah but you don't get it in movies I can't think of a single talking weapon in a, apart from Iron Man's armour which doesn't really count I think it's exceptionally hard work. You'd have to go some way because uh, usually the thing with uh, usually I think the thing with movies is there has to be some sort of visual element beyond a a static sword. Uh, it would have to uh, they, they'd have to make it throb somehow or, or something or other or bring it or or, or bring it to uh, or some other way of bringing it to life. You know, um, the, the, I, I'm sure if you sat Andy Serkis or Doug Jones down long enough and said, right, we need to bring this to life and we'd like somebody to do a voice, probably Peter Serafinovitz. Um, but <laughs> well, you know, in the can I- you help in the Iron Man movie? Um, that whole thing where you know where he's having he's talking to the AI in the suits. Oh, Jarvis, yeah, yeah, he's talking to J- Jarvis. He's is from um, Warren Ellis's Extremis comics, right? And Warren Ellis basically wanted to do a bit where he wanted to have Tony Stark do a Google, and he was like, I could do a dialogue box coming out where he's like, you know, Jarvis, Google, blah, but that's a bit rubbish, and it just you know the whole visual virtualization environment. But you don't get that in fantasy, and it kind of, you kind of, you do get it in fantasy. You just don't see it in fantasy movies. You know, when, when Frodo puts on the ring, he goes somewhere else. He doesn't just turn invisible. He goes goes into a dark realm and runs around for a bit. Is that not chewing into valuable editing time, though? <laughs> well, well, yes, but it's also, you know, I, I kind of, I love the idea of let's say because you know, magic swords are a trope. And we don't really see them in fantasy movies because you can't see why the sword is magical unless you make it glow, in which case it looks like a lightsaber and becomes a special effect. Well, but you either have to do that or yeah, or illuminate the entire room in a way that, you know. Do bullet time. Hmm. Do bullet time and then do bullet time and then also have the sword clearly point, you know, have lines coming out of the sword so you can see where he's going next and this sort of thing. So what you're saying is movies need to take a little bit more of a cue from video games and this sort of thing. Well, they, they're kind of blending into each other anyway. Yeah, quite. I mean, you've got the whole thing, get, getting back to the, the whole thing, you've got people like um, Jim Sterling, who's right, who is a writer of many, many franchise fiction, and he's been hired to write the actual, you know, the written components of video games. And you've seen we've seen a remarkable uptick in the writing of video games, where you know they they turn around to a, a writer and just basically say, write us a story, and we all put as much dialogue as we can into into the work. But they've been drawn in much earlier in the process now; they become more significant part of the ongoing process rather than yeah, because the production's very very much along the lines of a movie production, although. With a, and actually, I would have—I was about to say with a bit of added programming, but then I think about it. All the CGI people are running through now; it's probably about even. But again, you've got this whole. Essentially, we've stumbled onto a topic here, which is technology and communications, and, and how technology is changing writing, mm. and the way that we tell stories. And yet, we still also still we still get books in electronic formats that are only slightly enhanced so the Miss Fisher Made of Mysteries are turning up as they're, they're a popular series of the occult entertainment popular series of books yep. um, by Kerry Greenwood yep. and one of them is being adapted not by Kerry Greenwood 
to an adventure game book. App. Uh, it's not even being adapted. It's original. It's an original story within the overall world. Oh wow! Featuring characters um, who were established in the TV show but did not exist in the book world. Um, essentially, the 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 bad guy, and I'm you can, I'm doing inverted commas, but you can't see it because this is radio. Oh, I can. Don't yeah, but the but the bad guy is uh, a bad guy from a previous uh, TV season is showing up in the um, Tin Man Games adaptation. So it's an adaptation of a book of a TV show. Of a TV show back into a book format. Ish. So, and then someone needs to make that into a comic book, <laughs> and then turn that into a web series. But these things happily happen. I mean, even with um, Doctor Who, they'll run a series and there'll be an inter- they'll, they'll be an interactive and totally separate adventure going on on the BBC site, site that you can hop onto. So. They have those little games, don't they? Yeah. Which I'm terrible at. I'm terrible at video games. One of the things I've, I've noticed with uh, Doctor Who and the Doctor Who comic strip is that a lot of the, certainly the Russell T Davies plots, you sit there and you go, this is a comic strip plot. This is not like a classic Doctor Who plot. Where he 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 runs around, reverses polarity of the neutron floor, and they all run around again. This is like in the comic strips in the Panini comics, where he you know plugs himself into the God Machine and you know realigns reality. And this a lot of a lot of theme with New Who I found had more to do with the books and the comic strips than they had to do with the TV series. And I think that makes sense because the TV series had been away for so long. Yeah. That people had read the original that's fiction. where the adaptation comes back from because that's that's what people had been uh, ha- that's how people had been keeping the uh, franchise going essentially. I mean, we are we are totally just staggering from topic to topic, lurching from topic to topic here. But there's a, is is there any chance that they'll be turning Ravine because it's an image comic? Will they be turning Ravine into anything else, or is Ravine going to stay Ravine? I don't actually know. I think it's certainly capable. Um, from uh, from the looks of the panels, it's something that uh, it, it, it's something that could just very much leap into uh, leap into any other medium um, with very very little nudging. It's an interesting thing, actually. You can kind of see you can see when comic book has been written deliberately as a movie pitch and you can see why a comic book has just been written as a comic book and the ones that have just been written as a comic book are more likely to get turned into movies or TV series so The Wicked and the Divine was never meant to be anything other than a than a comic book mm. um, but because they were very visual of their design and very clever of their design um, people from you know, TV producers picked it up and went oh we can do this uh, if you've not read the beginning of the fine, we talked about it earlier on. We talked about it on the show a little while ago. At some point, we'll try and get Q and Gillen on, uh, and maybe Jimmy and McKelvey as well, and talk to them about the, the work. But one of the things they do with that is they they're very visual of the characters, and they're all reminiscent of like pop stars or rock stars. So you can kind of see where their kind of flow comes from, the idea yeah. comes from, and they you know they're gods. But you know, if you were a god, you'd dress like Barry, surely. You've got like powers, of course you would. Well, you wouldn't want it. Uh, you, you wouldn't want anyone hammering into you uh, your uh, your status as a deity because you've got poor fashion sense. Exactly. <laughs> but um, I quite like the way that Wardan uh, dresses like um, Daft Punk. He's got this whole Daft Punk vibe going on. Nice. Yeah, it works quite well. What right down to the anonymity? Uh, yeah, of the, the the face mask and the whole thing. He's got Valkyries who are also quite neon. Quite shiny and chrome. That's something else in town. Is there uh, is, is there a sidekick by the name of Dead Mouse? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't think we've seen a Dead Mouse esque type yet, but we probably will eventually. Uh, anyway, we've bimbled on for way too long. I've been your host, Ed Fortune. And I've been the co-pilot, Russ Smith. 
The Bookworm is a truly outrageous production for Fab, Radio International and Starburst magazine. Presented by Ed Fortune and Russell Smith. Produced by A.L. Johnson.